Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. Hey, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown, and I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're welcoming a legend in California politics. She's run some of the biggest ballot measure campaigns in state history, including the legalization of cannabis in 2016. For decades, she's been the go-to consultant for public teachers in California. She is a mentee of former Speaker and San Francisco Mayor Willie Brown, was a friend of Harvey Milk. Gail Kaufman's going to join us in just a few minutes. We're very happy to have her in studio today, even if she objects to our label of legendary. Yeah, well, We'll she's earned it. Yeah. So first, um, speaking of legendary, two legendary governors, let's call it. (laughs) Or infamous. (laughs) I don't know, yeah. Uh, Governor Gavin Newsom went on a little tour of the South with his uh, family for spring break. A little southern exposure. Where he essentially was, I think he's running for troller-in-chief, maybe? Yeah, I think he's got that wrapped up. Uh, No, you know, yeah, he he started off, I think, in Arkansas, went to an Emerge event with women who uh, ran for office, run for office down there, and then went to Alabama, Mississippi, and then, of course, couldn't resist going to Florida where his favorite target of trolling, uh, Ron DeSantis, is governor. You know, everyone, of course, is wondering, like, what does this mean? Is he running in 2024? What is he doing in 2024? And, you know, it is a very interesting part of the country uh, to be in. I would like to do that road trip someday (laughs) myself. No, there's, you know, and I think also if, you know, like we go to Orange County, we go to the Central Valley. I was up in Shasta County. Sometimes you go places you don't know that well. And, you know, sometimes it's just interesting to be someplace outside of, like, your blue state. That's This was just tourism (laughs) for Newsom. It had nothing to do with politics or that $10 million political action committee he seated just last week. Um, No, I mean, I think the Florida stop got the most attention, obviously, and for good reason, not only because of this DeSantis rivalry, but also because he went to this pretty progressive liberal arts public university that DeSantis and his allies have basically taken over. They gutted the entire board. They fired the president without cause. Uh, He says he's going to model it off of a Christian university in another state. This is New College, I think. This is New College, yeah. Yeah. And I think for Newsom, I mean, clearly his visit it changes nothing there, but it does give him an opportunity to be seen and to act as this sort of um, counselor for 
these young people who are feeling under attack. Um, and it does continue to raise its profile. Yeah, so it's working. A- absolutely. And I think if you, you know, when's the last time a Democrat carried one of those states? Probably Bill, uh, Bill Clinton carrying Arkansas. I mean, you know, I think when you are an activist, a progressive activist in a place like Mississippi or Alabama or Arkansas, you feel a little lonely. And to have a, the governor of the biggest state in the country come in, uh, it's probably kind of, you know, sort of exciting and energizing. Uh, I'm sure his wife, Jen, uh, also was uh, excited about uh, sort of, you know, meeting some of the women running for office down there. But absolutely. I mean, this does raise his profile. We don't know what he's going to do next. He probably doesn't know, but uh, it, he's not going to run for senator. He's not going to be on the Supreme Court. Probably won't be on the ticket with somebody else as vice president. So, you know, uh, nothing like, uh, you know, getting some chits, uh, raising some chits. We'll be watching. Uh, and we should say years. Obama did win Florida. You mean the other states have not? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The yeah, other yeah, state. Yeah. Well, okay. no, Florida's a Florida whole, other is a whole thing. basket yeah. case right now for Democrats. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Before we move on, we did get some new numbers this week. Campaign finance totals in a number of federal races, including the U.S. Senate race to replace Dianne Feinstein. Adam Schiff, uh, L.A. congressman, says he has about six and a half million raised. Katie Porter, Orange County Congresswoman, four and a half million. Oakland Congresswoman Barbara Lee, Lee, 1.4 million. Any surprises to you, Scott? You know, not really. I mean, Barbara Lee got in late and her campaign is sort of spinning it that way. Well, she raised that much in, uh, you know, five weeks. Um, You know, Adam Schiff is this is his moment. You know, he's in the spotlight now with the Trump indictments. He's making good use of it. Both he and Porter were great fundraisers, you know, already and had a lot of money in the bank. You know, Porter had to spend a bunch of it to get reelected. But, you know, this is about what we'd expect. This is the money race. Uh, It isn't it doesn't it's not decisive, uh, but it does tell you something. I mean, they both Porter uh, and Schiff had a lot of donors, you know, upwards. I think she had more than... 16, 20,000. He had, he had 24,000. I mean, there were a lot of people. Oh, giving. they say all kinds of things. Yeah. I'm just kidding. Um, we don't know yet. We don't, we, we we don't, don't have all the, yeah. we haven't, I mean, Trump claims that he got a bunch of new donors, but I'm not sure where that came yeah. from, right? But you'd kind of expect uh, that, the, that, the, that order of, uh, yeah. I mean, what I magnitude. found interesting is that Barbara Lee, when she put out her numbers, it was with this caveat, like we knew we were going to, to, to raise less. And she has been talking about that since she got into this race, that how it's historically been more challenging for her to raise money. We also know that she comes from a district where she hasn't had to in the past. Um, You know, she's really bullish about it, says we're still going to win this race. And, you know, money is not everything, but in a state like California, it's It's a lot. It is. You know, and when she, the day she announced, she said to me, look, I'm not going to raise the most money, but I'll raise enough money. And the question is, like, what's enough? enough? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Definitely not 1.4 million is not enough. That race is just starting. Uh, We will get back at it later. We're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll be joined by political consultant Gail Kaufman. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too 
at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. Today, we are very excited to be joined by Gail Kaufman. She has been a political consultant in California for four decades. During that time, she's mixed it up with governors, run campaigns for and against ballot measures. And she first joined us back in 2018, shortly after the launch of this show. Gail Kaufman, welcome back to Political Breakdown. Nice to see you. Nice to see you guys. This is great. We're super happy to have you. And I will say last time you got away without talking a lot about your personal story, and that is not going to happen today. So (laughs) (laughs) I guess to start, we need to return to Florida. You grew up in Miami Beach. Yes, I did. And I am curious, like, were your parents political? I think you've said your dad was a union guy. My grandfather was a union guy. And we talked politics all the time. But it was actually my older sister who um, got active at the University of Florida, who got me into politics. So sitting around the dinner table as a kid, you were talking politics? Oh, yeah. Yeah. All Democrats? Yes. Although my father started out as a Republican, but ultimately very progressive at the end. So... So I'm curious. I mean, I've also heard you talk about the fact that 18-year-olds were given the right to vote when you were, I think, in high school, yes. maybe? Let's do the math. Well, yes. I, I, I'm not doing the math. I'm just, I'm just I was vaguely. 16. Okay, you were yes. 16. 1971, I believe. So was that a huge moment for you? Like, did that kind of help light the spark? Yes, it's actually how I got involved, is doing voter registration efforts throughout Florida. And that got me active in national politics very early, and from there... It never stopped. Yeah. So what what brought you out to California? I believe you had a job and maybe in a congressional office. uh, I was supposed to have a job. What happened? um, Well, I worked for Senator Tunney uh, to put myself through college in D.C., and he lost. So I moved out here right after that thinking I had a job, and I didn't. So you lost I, to Hayakawa? He, yeah, that was Hayakawa. And th- because you had a job with another member of Congress? No, he oh, lost okay. his okay. re-election. Got so it. I was out of a job as soon as I got here and uh, worked for Quentin Cop of all things. Oh, my goodness. No kidding. And that's wow. how I met Harvey, uh, who Quentin was the only one who supported. We, we got to back say, up for yeah, folks yeah, yeah. who Let's are just not say familiar. Who Quentin, Cop is. <laughs> Quentin Cop is sort of a legend in Bay Area politics, former judge, former supervisor, um, very cantankerous, shall we say? If, yeah. you're, if you're a reporter, you have a voicemail from Quentin Cop. Fun, fun fact, dated Feinstein. When they were both on the board. I don't know how fun wow. that is, actually. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> it's a fact. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> so let's yeah. not go there. <laughs> so you're in City Hall then as an aide to him on the board? Yes. When, so in, uh, so and I was there the day that the, Harvey Milk was and George Moscone were murdered. Yeah. Before we get to that, I mean, tell us about your relationship with Harvey Milk. What was he like? Um, he was amazing. He was very He was very excited to be elected and to serve his area and... Um, I just really enjoyed spending time with him. And it was the only time I ever remember talking about men with a man. It was a new experience. We would walk down the street and talk about Do you people. have different tastes? <laughs> well, I don't remember. <laughs> he was, you know, of course, now he's St. Harvey. And, uh, you know, after the assassination, obviously it was traumatic and terrible. What, what did you know about him? What did you, uh, what was he like that people may not have known who, who weren't around them? Well, I knew that he was really uh, new to politics and was a little surprised at how hard it was mm-hmm. to kind of just do what he wanted to do. And I think if you th- if you read the history of why he and Dan White, for instance, didn't get along, um, it was a different moment and a different time. But 
They were both new to the Board of Supervisors and were kind of making it up as they went along. And also the gay community was a very different place in that time. And so for him, representing the entire gay community in some respects was um, a heavy lift for him. And I mean that in the most positive way. He took it that way and he did, I thought, an incredible job with it. Um, And it was horrific. I mean, you were there that day, I was there that day, I mean, that and obviously other things I know have really played a big role in shaping, you know, the political positions of people like Dianne Feinstein, their careers. I wonder, like, what you took from that as a young woman, besides just the trauma, obviously. Well, it it was a lot to go through. If you remember Jim Jones, Jonestown happened a week later. So San Francisco... Um, there were riots when Dan White was uh, acquitted. Lightly sentenced. Yeah, yeah or lightly sentenced. Um, it was a very difficult time. But for me, watching Diane uh, Feinstein go from almost stopping politics to becoming mayor right. and doing the job she did was also something amazing to watch. So not long after the assassination, you ended up in Sacramento in the early 1980s. How did you get there? Did you go there for a job as well? I did. I moved there to work for Willie Brown and um, did for a long time. I worked for him at uh, a place called the Speaker's Office of Majority Services and then came back. So that was about four or five years. And then I came back in 91 to become the director of that office, First Woman and single mother. So I worked for him again in the 90s until he became mayor. What, uh, when you first arrived, before before you came back with a little power in that office, <laughs> but I mean, what was it like coming in from, you know, City Hall here into Willie Brown's Sacramento Capitol building? Like, what were your first impressions and what did you learn from him? Well, I had never been to Sacramento, so it was kind of a shock to my system. San Francisco is very different. But um, I started off, you know, kind of low on the totem pole and just learned from everybody around. And the most amazing thing was his ability to really – he was so bipartisan in a way that the whole – you don't see anymore. He's an operator. And he was a complete operator. And I, not in the 80s, but certainly in the 90s, was fortunate enough enough to be able to watch him closely and see how he did the master job that he did for as long. It's interesting that you just described him as bipartisan. And he got along well with people like Jim Brulte and Ken Maddy back in the day. Uh, And he recently said to me that the reason Sacramento is so screwed up right now is that there isn't a viable Republican Party. Does that sound like something the Willie you know would say? Yes, now. But he and I still talk on a regular basis about how leadership has changed, how the body has changed, how the two parties are, they don't socialize, they don't go out, they don't know each other. And that's what I meant about Willie Brown. There was not a thing that happened in that building that he didn't know. He signed the uh, th- the paperwork for everybody who got employed, regardless of Democrat or Republican. So he knew all the members as intimately as you could, and it was important to him. Including the Republicans? Yes, yeah. all of them. So, And he knew what they wanted. I mean... Yes, he did. I think... I mean, very different situation, but you see Pelosi with this within her caucus, too, this ability 
to kind of titrate and understand what people need. Right. He was the ultimate insider. Yeah. And he knew what everyone needed, wanted, cared about. And that made him incredibly powerful. I want to ask you something else, because one thing I wanted to get, you have three boys, I believe. Yes. That you ended up having and raising. And, you know, you became a political consultant in 1987 when nobody was doing that, let alone a woman. Right. In the context of Willie Brown, like, it seems like, though, he gave you a lot of opportunities. I'm just curious, like, what was that relationship like? And did you ever feel like he was better or different at championing women than some of his counterparts in that era? Well, some of the most powerful people around Willie Brown were women. Yeah. One of them being Eleanor Johns. May she rest in peace. And, <clears throat> sorry. Oh, sure. Uh he nurtured people. He he gave me an opportunity as a single mother with a infant right. to come in as his director, and he knew what that meant. And he also knew that I didn't have a lot of people in my life as women to see as mentors, that all of my mentors pretty much were men. Mm-hmm. And so he recognized the importance of women in his life and his um, orbit. Yeah. And I think that helped me. And, and I asked him if I could ask him questions as we went along after meetings and tell me why you did it this way. Tell me how that happened. So he really, really was amazing at helping people, especially a woman like me, um, get ahead. Do you think that informed how you later as a business owner mentored women and, and sort of did that yourself? Well, I'd like to hope so. Um, I did think originally when I opened my business that I was going to try and only do women candidates. And that didn't last for long (laughs) because there just weren't enough and none of them were very good at raising money. But uh, I did start that way for a minute. I want to come back to Willie and his, his ability to hold on to power. I mean, in 1994, you know, but way back when, uh, Republicans for a moment had a majority in the assembly. Yes, they and, did. And Willie Brown engineered a couple things in 94 and 95. One was to get all the Democrats to vote for Doris Allen, who was an assemblywoman from Orange County, I think, um, which, of course, infuriated the Republicans. And then later he got Paul Horcher, another Republican, to become an independent so that the Democrats had enough votes to make him the speaker again. Boy, you talk about three-dimensional chess. Well, that's what he knew how to do, and he was tireless at it, and he was better than anyone else at it. And he did things, again, because he knew where to push and pull, and he could count, uh, which I think for insiders is something that they'll understand anybody else won't. But he always knew who was where and who he could depend on. And he also knew how to keep his mouth shut about those things so that when moves were made, um, no one saw them coming, or very few people (laughs) did. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are interviewing legendary political consultant Gail Kaufman. Gail, I want to ask you, in addition to Willie Brown, one of your other sort of to this day continuing clients and biggest legacies is your work with the California Teachers Union. Um, And I know that between your times in Willie's office when you struck out on your own, you 
actually ran an opposition campaign. Uh, I think this was in what ni- 1987, Prop 226. This was uh, 98. Yeah, yeah, 98. So Governor then Governor Pete Wilson wanted to, this anti-union uh, ballot measure that would have required unions to get written consent from members. Just tell us a little about that campaign, and is that what led you to work with the teachers ultimately? Well, I was already their consultant, which is how I got the campaign. That was my first initiative campaign, and I never would have gotten it if they hadn't helped me. Uh, Nobody knew me. Nobody knew what I could do, and I was a girl. And all of those things, especially with the international unions, were things that they didn't particularly care for. And the other thing about that campaign is nobody else wanted it. They Mm. thought it was that the no side was going to lose. So though all of those things combined gave me an opportunity, and I hired a woman to be my media consultant. So it was a woman team uh, in the so- inside of the union movement, and we did something that nobody expected. We won, and um, that really did forge my career. Well, and you did that a lot, winning, uh, <laughs> when uh, people <laughs> least expected box, yeah. it. Yeah. And I'm thinking of Arnold Schwarzenegger, who, uh, of course, was pretty popular when he defeated uh, in the recall Gray Davis, uh, was a very, you know, initially anti-union and, and wanted to put some things, did put some things on the ballot that would have, for example, made it harder to get teacher tenure. And you organized, orchestrated the opposition to his ballot measures using the teachers, the firefighters, and the nurses. Uh, and you really brought him down. Uh, what was your strategy going into that? And, and uh, did it unfold exactly as you thought? Or did he do things to make it easier for you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. All of the above. It was hard. We put in a lot of effort. We, I think, did the biggest uh, demonstration in front of the Capitol that anybody had ever seen. But to answer your question at its outset, one, I thought and told some of his people that uh, he was reaching a lot. And I think he thought his personal uh, position would get him a lot further than it did. And you mentioned the teachers, nurses, and firefighters, which was part of our thematics. But we had every union that both public and private at a table um, that no one had ever seen before in California. And they all invested in defeating all of those initiatives. So while I was in charge of it all, um, there were a ton of people involved. It was the most complicated uh, set of elections, uh, campaigns that I ever did. But um, in the end, the power of what our side was saying versus what he was saying won out. And it was a huge, huge victory. And I remember the day after the governor wanted to move on. He already had, he knew he was going to lose. So the very next morning, he, you know, was talking about something else. And I got up, even though all of my clients wanted to speak and just said to the press, could we have a moment? Can we just <laughs> have our victory before we turned the page? So we got about an hour and then, you know, the world moved on. But it was a huge disappointment for him and a huge victory for us. 
Yeah. I wonder where you see the state of labor and politics now in California. I mean, we've seen a lot of national attacks by Republicans on labor unions. We've also seen on an individual level some really huge organizing victories, right? Starbucks, Amazon. And yet there's a sense, you know, union membership is often declining in a lot of industries um, and they're often vilified. I mean, a lot of the debate over education gets laid at the feet of the CTA here in California who you represent. Like, how do you see that, particularly in California? Well, that's a complicated question, but (laughs) I'll say say that I think it's a mix. I think if you just look at the numbers, you would say one thing. If you look at the passion and the younger voters who aren't familiar with older union style, um, you see something else. Uh, Polling would tell you that unions are more popular now. The thought of a union drive or being involved in a union drive is higher than ever. Um, That's a national uh, thing as well as California. Um, So I look at that. Mm -hmm. There's a whole new generation of people who aren't familiar with workers' rights and what they mean, and they're just starting, and they sound like something that should already exist. So if you put it in that context, I think unions have a new strength and a new ability to get membership and for instance, organize things that have never thought to be organized before. Well, one of the things that they've tried to organize is the legislature. You know, <laughs> workers who <laughs> yeah, at the state I capital. I wish them luck on that. I'm well, not doing that one. Well, let's talk <laughs> about that. Yeah, yeah, because, I mean, you know, the, the like... party has always been so identified with unions and union movements. We've just talked about that. And yet the yeah, Democrats have been very wary of allowing their staff to unionize. A lot of people say that's a little hypocritical. Well, I don't know if I would say that because you serve – I'm old school. You, if you work in the building of, of the Capitol or you work for a member of the legislature, you work at the will of that member. And normally a union is there to provide support for a, a larger group of human beings who need the help in order to just get a wage or benefit. And so I see it a little bit differently. If you were going to organize in the Capitol, you're organizing something else, not the same. Uh, And so that's how I see it. I want to ask you about another ballot measure, probably one that most people are familiar with here. That's Prop 64, the legalization of cannabis. This is a massive campaign with a very diverse, huge coalition. I think it's one of the only ones you said that you were really involved in, like from soup to nuts, where you helped actually craft... you know, the body of it. I guess seven years later, any surprises, any regrets? Like, how do you see that in hindsight? Well, it's the most well-known one, obviously, in a lot of respects. I I have mixed feelings about it. Uh, having never really been involved in the crafting of one before, having been handed them, basically, mm. either the yes or the no side, after that process, of course, in retrospect, I would make some changes seeing how things have played out. But I also know why we made the choices we did. And a lot of the times what you do in order to get something passed is different than if you could just do what you want to do. Right. That's the whole so rub of the, the ballot measure exactly. system. <laughs> that's the pros and cons of putting it on the ballot the way that you do with mm-hmm. signatures. So um, I think people mostly are glad that it's legal. 
but the implementation of some of it hasn't gone exactly as smoothly as I would have hoped. Um, for instance, cities and counties um, were a huge problem for us. We were worried about, you know, whether they would support or oppose. It wasn't thought while people were for it. Right. Um, Organizations and half of them still haven't exactly it half to of them haven't even yeah. allowed it to occur. Yeah. Yeah. Politics is big business in California. Uh, it's a big state. Campaigns are expensive. You've made a lot of money on campaigns, um, and I'm wondering. You know, some people feel like the, the process is too powerful. Direct democracy is too powerful. You, if voters do it, only the voters can change it. You're stuck with things like you know the, all the marijuana stuff. You know that was in the ballot measure. Would you support any changes? to the process of putting things on the ballot? I mean, we're seeing also the abuse of the, as some would say, of the referendum. Well, I would support it, but it doesn't matter what I say. Voters, because I've done enough focus groups to tell you, they don't know what they don't know. So if they think they have a right to vote on certain things, if you try and change that in any way, they're going to say no because they think you're taking something away, even if they don't understand it. And that may be obscure and it may not make sense, but most people know that they get to vote on things and they don't want you to take that right away. What would you change if you could? Well, I don't like what's going on with the referendum situation, to be honest, because it's an interesting and smart way of Republicans trying to undo legislation. They don't have the votes to do the other way, like in the legislature. So I don't like that because that's just all about money mm-hmm. and it's not about policy. And I don't think it's fair, to be honest. So you're not retiring, but you have taken a step back from full-time ballot measure campaigns. You're still advising some of your key clients. Um, what is just on your plate for the year ahead? Are you going to um, like enjoy any of this, scale? <laughs> Well, I love politics, obviously. I always have. It's been a passion. Um, There may be more money in it than there was when I started, but I'll say I didn't do it originally for the money. I've always known I wanted to be in politics. And to be honest, I don't know that everybody who's in the business now comes at it from the same way I do. And people of my generation who came into it with ideology and a thought process that's not about money as much as it is making changes, whether you like them or not. And and a respect for the voters, I hear. Yes. It's probably why you won a lot of those. Exactly. <laughs> and understanding how voters think. Yeah. So that's important to me. And All I'll right. keep doing that. Well, we're going to have to leave it there. Gail Coffin, she'll probably be back. Thanks for coming <laughs> in. <laughs> My pleasure. That will do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer today is Catherine Monahan. I'm Scott Schaefer. Find more of KQED's politics coverage by subscribing to our Political Breakdown newsletter. You'll find it at kqed.org slash newsletters. He's Scott Schaefer. I'm Marisa Lagos. We'll see you next week. I'm Sasha Koka, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I'm Randad Fattah from Throughline. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.